0: excited to continue in this sermon series, Truth in Love, uh, this week as we're dealing with topics that are difficult to engage in from the perspective that truth and love are not at odds. As a matter of fact, you can't have one without the other. And we want to hold in beautiful tension this idea that we can speak the truth in a loving way and we can be loving in a truthful way and you can't actually have one without the other. We wade into, I think, an incredibly difficult topic this morning that is very real for us, especially those of us who call the Metroplex our home, because last Tuesday we we saw a verdict rendered in the Amber Geiger case. Now, on Wednesday, what went viral was the hug heard around the world. But the day before that, on Tuesday, before uh, the sentencing had had been carried out, the verdict was rendered. And I remember sitting there Tuesday and and watching the response of many to the verdict of guilty of murder. And what I saw on one side of the conversation was a lot of people who, were, who felt like justice had not been served. And many that I heard from said justice wasn't served on the side that, that if you're not familiar with this case where an officer accidentally walked into the wrong apartment, a Caucasian officer walked into an African American's apartment, Saw him in what she thought was her house. She shot him and killed him. She was found guilty, Tuesday before last, of murder. Many felt like justice was not served because by legal definition, murder is premeditated, And so they felt that the, the verdict was unjust because of political motivations. Some felt that the, the entire process was not just because they felt it should not have been tried in Dallas County. But I heard from many others who the next day believed that justice was not served because the sentence was only 10 years for the conviction of murder. And what I experienced Tuesday was, it feels like nobody in our city thinks they won today. From whatever side you seem to hear from the topic, people felt like justice had not been served. And then the next day after sentencing we have the encounter where Brant Jean, the, the brother of Botham Jean, took the stand and pronounced to Amber Geiger, more than anything, I want you to know Jesus Christ and the forgiveness found in Him. And I want you to know what it is to have a relationship with God. And then, and then Brant Jean asked permission from the judge to go and hug Amber Geiger, in a display of that compassion. And many people who hadn't paid attention to the case, who weren't really concerned with the ramifications of what this means for race relationships in our city, all of a sudden jumped on board and this picture went viral. While still the conversation was being had of was justice served. And this is just a week and a half ago. And then early yesterday morning, right here in Fort Worth, we have a 28-year-old African-American woman shot and killed in her own home by a Caucasian police officer. And what we see is this is a difficult topic. A topic where there's a lot of voices As a matter of fact, this is a topic where daily we seem to hear contentious conversations. There's forums being hosted and we're sponsoring debates and we're fostering dialogues and we're writing articles and we're giving speeches. But the voice that seems most missing in this discussion is the one most needed, the voice of the creator of us all. And so I invite you, please, to grab your Bible this morning. If you don't have one, there's one underneath the seat in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, please keep that. Let that be our gift to you today. Uh, To our guests, we invite you to join with us in our tradition before we dive into this book. We hold it up in the air and we say a creed together about what we believe this book to be. And so if that matches your heart, uh, would you please hold up your Bibles and say this together with us. The Bible is the Word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind and give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. Please turn to Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6. I'm glad that went away because I have no idea how to fix that. (laughs) We were just going to sit there and look at it and hope it went away. Did you see that on the screen? Okay. Are we going to acknowledge the... Micah chapter 6. This whole series has been rooted in Ephesians chapter 4 where uh, the text says we are to grow up. We're to grow up into him who is the head, into Christ. And, and the mark that we're growing up as the followers of Jesus is that we speak the truth in love. That truth is found in love. And so this idea that if we're loving we won't say anything truthful that might hurt someone's feelings actually isn't being loving. And saying, but it's the most loving thing I can do to speak the truth, so I can say it any way that I want. That's not necessarily loving. Truth and love are not at odds with one another. We can't have one without the other. And so we've been dealing with very difficult cultural conversations for the last several weeks and for several more to come. Looking for the tension of truth and love in the midst of these conversations. Because it's really not about the conversation. It's about a person, and his name is Jesus. Micah chapter 6, verse 8, I believe is a beautiful framework for specifically the Amber Geiger trial, verdict, and sentence. Because God tells us what's good. He tells us what's required of us. And that is to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. If we have any hope to walk into these difficult conversations, is there justice? No, that kindness was shown too quickly. As a matter of fact, last night a pastor was quoted after the shooting here in Fort Worth. A a pastor from Fort Worth said, there's no hug this time. There's no forgiveness this time. As though justice and kindness are at odds. The reality is, in the mind and the heart of God, mercy and justice exist together. But we can only experience that and contend for that when we humble ourselves before our God. And the problem is, specifically in the topic of race conversations, many of the loudest voices are anything but humble. What we need this morning is some humility before God to see ourselves more clearly and to see one another as God created us to be. We're going to talk about two different tensions this morning with this idea of truth and love, of justice and kindness. The first thing I want us to discuss this morning is, is we must lovingly be truthful about our differences. We're not all the same. We're different. And that's okay. The call of God is not that we would all be the same. If we don't own the fact that we're different, we won't ever know how to find common ground. And because of our differences, what has proven to be true in generation after generation, I love the way that that Matt Chandler worded this. He said, in every generation, we drift towards the mirror. In every generation, we drift towards a reflection of ourselves. We must consider that in our own lives, the tendency is to have dinner tables filled with people who look like us. To have our friendships with people who look like us. To have one perspective of the world. We only have conversations with people who vote the same way we do and believe the same way we do. We end up with only one point of view and one way of seeing the world. And what happens is we're actually having conversations with ourselves in the mirror. If everybody that we do life with looks just like us, that's a drift toward the mirror. And not a step toward celebrating the beauty of of diversity that God intended. I just saw that pop out of my peripheral vision. And I'm... Is somebody trying to connect to that? I bet it's Landon. Just kidding, Landon. We drift towards the mirror. So here's what I will acknowledge this morning I'm going to say something shocking and stunning as we begin our conversation about race this morning. I am white. I'll give you a minute. (laughs) I am. Which means I have a set of lenses when I come to this conversation that are blind to other perspectives if I don't humble myself before God. I've mentioned a couple times in this series that I've been reading this phenomenal book called uh, Misreading the Scripture Through Western Eyes. And it's been so amazing to see that I read the scriptures and I read the culture. Through a certain set of lenses based on how I was raised. By the way, and we all do, and that's not a bad thing unless we pretend it doesn't exist. I'm not just white. I'm American. I have visited a lot of other places, but I'm not from anywhere else. I'm from here. And I'm not just from America generally. I was raised on the East Coast until ten and a half years ago when God called us to Fort Worth. I had only ever lived in the East Coast my most formative years we're in the North, and I was raised by Northern parents. Th- that is part of my lenses. Most of my life, I've been considered middle class. We had some rough years when I was little. But most of my life, I've been a white American, East Coast middle class. And here's another shocking piece of information I'm male, which means I believe biblically, we'll talk about this in a couple of weeks, I've always been male. I've always been, my whole life, white, American, middle class, most of my life East Coast, male. And that influences how I approach the Scriptures and how I approach the culture. And if I don't acknowledge that, I will end up blind to other points of view. Now let me say this. I'm not saying I'm embarrassed over ashamed of anything I just said. I'm not promoting white guilt. I didn't apologetically just say I'm white middle class. I'm none of those things on purpose. Why would I feel guilty about those things? I didn't choose to be born in America. I didn't choose to be born. I didn't choose to be white. I didn't choose to be male. I didn't choose to be middle class. All I did was spend my parents' money, not help them earn. And... and. And despite the way that things work with kids nowadays, I didn't tell my parents we were going to live on the East Coast. seems the kids nowadays seem to kind of run the household. But I didn't have any choice in where we lived. So I'm none of those things on purpose. That's just the set of lenses I've grown up with, which means I need to be sitting at a table with lenses other than mine. If I'm going to read the scriptures correctly and read the culture adequately, I need lenses beyond my own. And the reality is not just that that's who I am. What's natural, what's the tendency in my flesh, is to drift towards the mirror. Towards people who are like me. I'm going to be completely honest. Maybe this is going to make everybody uncomfortable, which is so enjoyable for me. If I were to walk into a room where I knew no one today, and in this room there's two tables full of people. One is a table of young African American women and one is a table of middle-aged Caucasian men, all wearing khakis and polo shirts like Jake from State Farm. I would drift towards that table because I know how to talk to those guys. That, that's not because I would be offensive. And by the way, most of us would drift towards the table that we think looks most like us. That exists inside of all of us. Which isn't a sinful thing, which isn't a bad thing, but it demands that we confront it if we're truly going to love justice and love mercy and walk humbly with our God and hold truth and love together. One of the ways that I know I have misread Scripture um, in that great book, the authors talked about a text in Numbers chapter 12 that I have misunderstood my whole life because I'm an American, white, southern, blah, 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 all that stuff I said earlier. Because I'm all those things. I've read this story in Numbers chapter 12 incorrectly. Out of historical context. So Romans, uh, I'm sorry, Numbers chapter 12, verse 1 says, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he'd married. For he had married a Cushite woman. You just said that. Anytime the scripture stutters, we're supposed to pay attention. Right? And and, and what I learned earlier in my life is, is that a Cushite woman was a black woman. So I've read this my whole life. And by the way, God gets really ticked off farther in Numbers chapter 12 about this whole encounter here. I've read Miriam and Aaron were a bunch of racists. They were angry at Moses for marrying a black woman. Right? But the reality is I'm reading that through American historical lenses. The Kushites were not a slave race. No one viewed them that way in any culture in the world in that time. Now, Miriam and Aaron and Moses just a generation before had been slaves in Egypt and were considered by the population of the world to be a lesser race climbing their way back up to the top. The reality is the Kushites were respected as bad to the bone warriors. This woman was like from that island, from Wonder Woman, you know, like bat-of-the-bone warrior princess. They are mad at Moses because he married up so far. Not getting married down. Like, can't believe he... No. They were intimidated by her. Which makes sense then for what they said when they spoke against him. Verse number 2 says, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? And I really think they did their hands that way when they said it. Has he not spoken through us also who does he think he is he married a kushite woman, dude He's leaving us in the dust but i've read that through a certain set of lenses because of how I grew up And what I what I want to say is if we are pretending That we have no differences then by definition. We aren't celebrating our differences We come to the table with different journeys. That's how we learn from each other and celebrate the beauty of diversity in humankind. We're not all the same. This past spring, my wife and I were in Washington, D.C., and we got to do a quick tour of the Lincoln Memorial. It was really crowded. But I fought through the crowd to try to find the marker where Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. stood and delivered his most famous speech, the I Have a Dream speech, during the March on Washington. And there's a part of that speech that I think we have just misunderstood, and we've almost propagated a misunderstanding in our modern culture. That part of the speech is when he said, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And we have misinterpreted that in modern society as trying to to progress to be colorblind, whatever that means. I don't see color you're a liar When people tell me they don't see color, I want to pay for something with yellow money and be like that's cash It's good. Take it Tell me so all three of our sons are actually colorblind And here's what i've learned scientifically about colorblindness it is a gene mutation I'm raising three little mutants in my house God didn't intend for us to be colorblind. He he, he created us to celebrate diversity. And when we ignore the beauty of the body of Christ that God's creating, we don't honor the Scriptures. The message of the Word of God, the message of the Gospel, is not denial of obvious ethnic, cultural, and historical differences. The Gospel narrative starts with one story and then develops into the beauty of Of the diversity that we see today. We must be lovingly truthful about our differences. But here's the tension. We must also be lovingly truthful about our sameness. We must be lovingly truthful not just about our differences, but about our sameness. Uh, Each week, the last several weeks, and and again next week, we've looked at Genesis chapter 1. Let's go back to the beginning of this whole thing called humanity and culture And what we see is that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. What makes the human race so extraordinary is that we all bear the image of God. What makes our value is not what that image now looks like in our unique journeys or the color of our skin. What makes our value profound is it's the very image of a holy God. I love the phrase, and I use it a lot. Um, I stole it from Paul David Tripp, my favorite author, who stole it from C.S. Lewis, his favorite author. In We are all the sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. I love that phrase. It reminds us that we're not as unique as we think we are. <laughs> I was listening to a great sermon this week by Vody Bauckham where he said, we must answer the question, are there many races or is there one race? The human race. Because I believe the, the, the story of Scripture is that there is one human race that uniquely bears the image of God. The Apostle Paul uh, was speaking to a group of unbelievers in Athens, Greece. And he's telling them about this God whose image we bear. He says, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place through one man. God created the generations of humankind as they would spread out throughout the world. This was all a part of the mind and heart of God. He did that through one man, P.S., and they bear one image, P.P.S., and they bear one purpose, namely that they should seek God. And and we're not seeking God like in this hide-and-seek kind of way, but in hope That they might feel their way toward Him and find Him. Why why do we have this hope? Because He's actually not far off from each one of us. In Him, we live and move and have our being. And even as some of your own poets have said, we are indeed His offspring. Maybe the song we should have sung in Sunday school was, Father Adam had many sons. (laughs) That we're all united as the human race in Adam and Eve. As a matter of fact, Webster's Dictionary, the 1828 version, defines race this way. Race is the lineage of a family or continued series of descendants from a parent who's called the stock. A race is the series of descendants indefinitely. Thus, all mankind are the race of Adam. We belong to one race. We're not as different as we think we are. The Roman world, when we read the scriptures, understand this. The Roman world in the New Testament was filled with racism. As Rome was conquering the world, what was happening is dominant race and subjective race. By the way, they were conquering the whole world. The the us versus them at this time in history was profound. And in the midst of all that division, the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Colossae and says, Here, there's something different about the people of God. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. And here's the thing. Hear me this morning. One of the reasons that we fixate on our differences is because we are fixated on self. But it's all about Him. And when we center away from self and my culture and my rights and my community, and I live for the glory of God, what I realize is the person to my left and to my right bears that image. Which means the only way I can be for Him and live for Him and honor Him is by loving the people who reflect Him in all of their beautiful diversity. It's all about Jesus. It's not about us. The false narrative of our culture today is that we are our ethnicity. And that is a part of my story. I said I am white. But that's not all I am. And that's not even close to primarily who I am. That's not even close to the most important thing about me. But we define ourselves now in this way. We are Chinese Mexican Egyptian Russian Swedish African good grief y'all are really into being Texan (laughs) We are our journey When I believe there's a greater identity to be had there's a greater identity to rule and reign and define us We're the sons and daughters of God We're the image bearers of a holy and majestic God I'm not first and foremost American. I'm a child of the King of Kings. We're we're defining ourselves by these individualistic labels to separate us from one another. And I'll be honest, even in the labeling, we haven't really clarified anything. We haven't cleared anything up by doing this. And I'm going to be real honest with you. As a white man, I don't know what to call my black friends. I'm confused. Literally. I'm getting, mixed. is everybody uncomfortable now? I will never forget several years ago when our, our orphanage in Nigeria, a place of hope of Africa, was going through transition and I was traveling back and forth. And for a season of our life, I was more there than here. And a friend of mine took me to lunch to try to be an encouragement to me. And we're talking about what's going on at a place of hope. And this friend of mine happens to be an African-American. And as we're discussing what God's doing in Nigeria, he said, well, what else are you involved in in Africa? And I said, well, I serve on the board of directors for a great ministry in Ivory Coast, West Africa, uh, church planning in villages that have never heard the name of Jesus. And there's an orphanage there, great ministry. He said, yeah, tell me the rest of your story. And here's the thing. Since then, I've had a life-changing experience in Uganda. Oh, I could talk for an hour about Uganda. Don't worry, I won't. Your lunch is getting cold. But man, uh, the the ministry we experienced there on the border of South Sudan, we could hear gunfire at night ministering to refugees there, ministering to refugees from the Democratic Republic of Congo. And and this is what my friend says to me. He says, dude, don't call me an African-American. You're more African than me. And I said, keep your voice down. He goes, seriously, I'm not getting on a plane. I'm not going to Africa. I don't want to leave Texas. Texas. African-American. He said, you're doing more for the people of Africa than I will do in my lifetime. Don't call me African-American. So, well, I'm confused. So then, fast forward, two years ago, my wife's first trip to a place of hope, we went with some friends of ours. And within our group, there was a group of us that were about the same age. And so the five of us ended up hanging out a lot. And if the five of us were to sit together at a table in the States, People would be like, oh, that's a diverse table. Because there's me and my wife who are white. And then the the other couple in our group of five, he is Puerto Rican and Italian, and she is Hispanic. The fifth person in our group is Micah. Micah is African American. So we, if we sat at a table here, would look like this really diverse table, right? But the thing is, all of our Nigerian friends called us Anocha, which means white. Because to them, you're all from the same culture. You're from the same background. You're from the same place. They didn't celebrate our differences. They, our sweet little orphans, went, all y'all's life's better than ours. They didn't see us as divided. They didn't see us as unique. They saw us as brothers and sisters in Christ. Which means the beauty of perspective. They, they're, they're removed enough to have the clarity that we all need. We have a greater identity. There's a great book called A Practical Guide to Culture by John Stonestreet that I could not recommend higher. A lot of things this morning came from, from that book. And he says this. An over-identification with ethnic identity can unnecessarily exacerbate racial divisions. If I primarily define myself by my color, my culture, or my background, I'm actually not helping the problem. I'm making it worse. Primarily, I need to advocate for the human race as all creatures bearing value, bearing worth, bearing the image of God. Because these things that we call differences, biologically, scientifically, are minuscule. We primarily define our differences by appearance. And here's what's awesome. We know more about the human body than any generation in humankind. The Human Genome Project has studied these differences. And I love what the the researchers said. They said, if you ask what percentage of your genes is reflected in your external experience, the basis by which we talk about race, The answer seems to be in the range of 0.01%. So we absolutely need to celebrate our differences. Let's just realize they're not as different as we want to think they are. God's created us incredibly same because we're supposed to be in this thing together. That that, that research said a, a draft of the entire sequence of the human genome Reveals unanimously that there is one race The human race Our origin as God's image bearers Then multiplies into beautiful diversity Through our ethnic origins From this beginning We receive the inherent dignity Of every ethnic group Created in the image of God So here's the question this morning What race were Adam and Eve? What race? There's only one answer, appropriate answer to this, and it is the human race. Right? But let's say that's not a sufficient enough answer. What if you said, no, I want to know what color their skin was. And here's the answer, and this is an incredibly important answer. We don't know. On purpose, we don't know. Now, some have said perhaps Adam's skin was redder, more of the clay from which God formed the dust in his ground. Some Hebrew scholars actually think that the color red is inherent in the word Adam in Hebrew, although I think that's quite a stretch. And maybe Eve was the color of bone because God took her from the rib and formed her from the rib of man. We don't know. Why do we have to make stuff up? We don't know because God doesn't apply value, worth, or identity that way. What God does go out of His way to say, almost like a broken record in Genesis 1 and 2, is that we bear His image. He's placed His image on us. That's the defining mark. And beautifully, mysteriously, God placed in Adam and Eve the capacity in their DNA for all the beauty of diversity we see across the world today. If we ask that question, we misunderstand the unity of the human race. We have the same roots. Uh, the Apostle Paul says to the church, the Galatian church, Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We've got to talk about this verse for a minute. Because we're going to talk about gender in a couple weeks. And let me clarify, there is male and female. We're actually going to have to contend for that in a couple weeks. So he's not saying that that doesn't exist. By the way, if I were a Jewish slave reading this, I'm like, there's no slave or free. Really, Jack? Because this feels like slavery. If I'm a Jew living in a Gentile world or in a Greek world, I'm going, seriously, there's no difference? What are you talking about? The Apostle Paul's not saying there's not differences. He's just saying there's a more important sameness that we are one in Christ, that it's the single de- defining piece of our identity. And, and many people misconstrue this as much as they do Dr. King's words. This is not calling for us to be colorblind. It's calling for us to root our identity in something greater with all of our differences. So we hold intention truthfully and lovingly, our differences? And our sameness. Quickly i got to move on. Because we're going to hold something else in tension. We must be lovingly truthful. About our problem. We must be lovingly truthful. About our problem. Because we inherited. More than just Adam's origin story. We inherited his fallenness too. There's a problem. And it's called sin. And one of. One of the manifestations of sinful hearts is that some people hate people and judge people based on 0.01% differences between them. That's sin. We don't just find our origin story through one man. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says, Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, Because all sinned. We didn't just inherit a propensity to sin. We did it. (laughs) We have sinned against God. Racism is one of those sins that has divided humankind. We said a few weeks ago that when sin came into the world, what came with it? Conflict between humankind. Conflict over minuscule differences. And what that means is every generation... Since Adam has needed racial reconciliation. Every generation since Adam has needed racial reconciliation, which means we're not as special as we think we are. This isn't a modern problem, this isn't new, this isn't unique to our chapter of the story. The fact is, when we study history, we've seen in every civilization in all of recorded human history that people have hated people because of their differences. This isn't new. And it's not just not a new problem. Racism isn't particularly an American problem. It's a human problem. Now, we live here, so we talk about our problems here more. But let's not pretend that this is something unique to our culture. I think sometimes we want so bad to be special. The fact is the world is full of racism. Horrible conflict from the streets of Palestine to the tensions between North and South Korea. They're both Koreans and they're trying to kill each other. Just this week we've seen again the conflict between the Kurds and the Turks. In our recent past as a civilization, we've seen... Heartbreaking racial conflicts in Rwanda and Bosnia and Sudan. Unspeakable acts of violence in Chechnya, France, India, Sri Lanka, Russia, Bolivia, Belgium, Great Britain. Racial strife is found on every country in earth. Because we need a savior. Because we are broken. Humanity is in desperate need of rescue and redemption And reconciliation that's only found in Jesus. And we must be honest about the problem if we seek to be part of the solution. Columnist Jack White said, The most insidious racism is among those who think they don't harbor any. The reality is many of us grew up in churches full of racist people. The reality is many of us came from racist homes. The reality is many of us work with racist co-workers. If we pretend the problem is gone, we will never be part of moving forward. Some people think the civil rights movement changed our nation and we don't have a problem anymore. I hear people say things on TV like, it's time for people to get over it. Quit playing the race card. Everything's better. And take a glimpse at social media for more than 30 seconds and what you'll find is it's not over and it's not fixed. Ask minority neighbors if they've experienced racism. They're going to tell you a story. And then that mirror that we said we drift towards, I encourage you, let's look in our own mirror and ask ourselves, how would you respond if your son or your daughter brought home a date with a different color skin than yours? Would you love them the same as you would if their skin was your color? Maybe there are seeds of racism in our own hearts that need to be excavated by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Racial divisions are hardly behind us, and it does no good to pretend that it's over. Racism is a sin. It's not just a sin against our neighbor, it is a sin against the Creator God. And it's a reality. And only by acknowledging it can we confront it. Many Americans believe that in 2008, with the election of a black president, maybe racism would finally be behind us. And the fact is, we're not any farther down the road now than we were then. We must be lovingly truthful about our problem. But here's where we hold the tension. We must also be lovingly truthful about our progress. If we only talk about the problem and don't celebrate that we have come from somewhere we will end up defeated and discouraged and will end up moving backwards. I don't think that racism is gone, but I do believe we're making progress as a culture. And the rest of the world is watching us. Consider these statistics from the Gallup organization. In 1958, only 37% of Americans expressed willingness to vote for a black person for president. In 1999, 20 years ago, that percentage had risen to 95%. Let's acknowledge a problem. 5% of Americans wouldn't vote for a black person even if they were the right candidate. That's heartbreaking. But let's celebrate that the numbers risen to 95%. We are moving. There is progress in our culture. Again, quoting from 1958, only, God forgive us, only 4% percent of americans approved of interracial marriage between blacks and whites in 1958 in 2013 87 percent of americans approved which tells us two things 13 percent of americans need to get their head out of their hat and it also tells us that we are moving the right direction The Gallup organization said, this research is one of the largest shifts of public opinion in Gallup history. 28 years ago, in 1991, a black Harvard sociologist named Orlando Patterson said this in the New York Times. America, while still flawed in its race relations is now the least racist white majority society in the world and has a better record of legal protection minorities than any other society. And I don't pretend to say that everybody feels this or would agree with this. But I believe it's this kind of message that encourages us to continue to move forward and to fight for progress. The lie of the, the, the narrative of the culture is... Nothing's gotten anywhere, nothing's any better, and all that does is to send us to despair and division and separation. So we hold intention the problem and the progress. And we conclude with this idea we gotta keep moving forward, church. We must keep progressing. We must keep moving forward. We must keep demonstrating that there is healing in, an, in a new identity in Jesus Christ. The reality is this concept of minorities and majorities. Within 30 years, minorities will be the majority in the U.S. So let's continue to work forward as the body of Christ. Because here's what I believe with every fiber of my being, I believe that the only path to true racial reconciliation is redemption through Christ. We won't move forward through policy or politicians and not celebrities or Twitter accounts. We will move forward in the power of the blood of Jesus Christ, which means we want all of our neighbors. To know the saving grace of God. We want all of our neighbors. All of the ethnicities represented in our community. To hear that God loves them so much. That that problem, that sin. He offered up his son. To make us his people. To give us a healed identity. And a healed relationship with God. The reality is the church should be modeling for the world. What racial reconciliation looks like And you've heard me say this before Many others have said it before me And yet the most segregated hour of the week Is Sunday morning And I praise God As a church We have stepped forward in diversity From where we were ten and a half years ago Praise God for that We still have a long way to go We don't look like our community If you draw a five mile circle around this campus This community is 38% African American 39% Anglo that doesn't reflect our, in our congregation We got somewhere to go We got work to do Because the culture at large should be saying Hey we want to see us progress But the church has figured it out What's their secret sauce? It's Jesus Our children should see In our homes That we're changing the next generation By raising kids to love all people Because they bear inherent value And dignity as image bearers that we're raising our kids to long for what we talked about last week in Revelation chapter 7, that there's coming a day. Where one race, the human race, will stand before one throne, the throne of the one whose image we bear, and will declare from every nation, from every tribe, from every language and every people that salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and the Lamb. Because we believe the day is coming when every knee, whatever color it might be, will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And if we don't live in a way that reflects that coming great day, We are not modeling the gospel in our generation. We belong to a greater kingdom. and So let's live like it. The fact is, as the body of Christ, let me just say this just about the church in America for one second, and I'm out of time, real quick. But I'm going to say this as a white pastor. I have more in common with a black believer than a white unbeliever. You understand that, right? Like if what unites us is a relationship with God, then we have more in common regardless of how we were raised or where we're from. There's something that unites us that's far greater and far deeper. Let's drift towards the table that unites us all. It's the Lord's table where we celebrate the body and blood of Jesus. I told you earlier, Votie said we must answer the question... Are there many races, or are there one? And then he said this, Or, are there many races, or just two? What the New Testament calls Jew and Gentile, believer and unbeliever, children of the first Adam, or children of the second Adam. The reality is, heartbreakingly today, there are two races. Those who are in Christ, and those who Who are outside of Christ and looking in And our mission in life Is to extend a welcome to every person Who's outside of the body of Christ I want to close with this just because I believe It's It's so helpful More than 50 years ago 16th Street Baptist Church In Birmingham, Alabama was bombed For no other reason than being a Congregation of black worshipers. Afterwards Martin Luther King Jr And let me just be clear I don't care what you think of his politics He led a peaceful march Through downtown Birmingham And was arrested and thrown in jail Thrown into solitary confinement For leading a peaceable march And while there Someone brought him a published letter That had been publicly published By eight white pastors in Birmingham Condemning and criticizing him king wrote a response that has been memorialized as letter from a birmingham jail where he explained he had to justify his peaceable actions to these pastors but then he said these words in the midst of blatant injustices inflicted upon the negro i have watched white churches stand on the sideline and merely mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities. In the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I have heard so many ministers say, there are no social issues. Those are social issues with which the gospel has no real concern. And then he pleaded. There was a time when the church was very powerful. And it was during that period when the early Christians Rejoiced when they were deemed worthy to suffer for what they believe In those days the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society If the church of today does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church It will lose its authentic ring forfeit the loyalty of millions and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century, and that is no less true for the 21st century. God is calling his people to rise up with an identity in Christ that is unshakable, that shapes the world around us, to love people who bear the image of God.